presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Podcast. My name is Earl Wright. I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. CSI's recent report, The Colorado Crime Wave, an economic analysis of crime and the need for data-driven solutions, created its own wave in the media and public discussions on the topic since its release. For the first time, it put a cost on crime within the state of Colorado. Shockingly, the cost burden borne by victims in society was more than $27 billion in 2020. Underlying this enormous cost are concerning trends both in the rate of crime, the outcomes of our criminal justice system across our courts and corrections system. Joining this conversation are CSI Criminal Justice Fellows and report co-authors Mitch Morrissey and George Brockler. George Brockler was the district attorney for the 18th Judicial Circuit Court, uh, Colorado's most populous district, consisting of Arapahoe, Douglas, Albert, and Lincoln counties from 2013 to 2021. George prosecuted many high-profile situations, cases including felony cases from the Columbine High School mass shooting case, the Athor Theater mass shooting case, and recently the STEM Academy School mass shooting case. George, great to have you with us today. Sir, thanks for having me, and thanks to Common Sense Institute for making this happen. You're welcome. Mitch, he was with the district attorney for, he was a district attorney for the Second Judicial Court from 2004 to 2017. Mitch Morrissey is internationally recognized for his expertise in DNA technology, applying that technology in criminal prosecutions, and working to ensure that DNA science is admissible in the court. Kind of an advanced approach to uh, CSI, I guess. Yes, yes. In 2017, Mitch co-founded United Data Connect, a forensic DNA software company, which has developed a secure web-based system to make familiar familiar search software available at a reasonable cost to law enforcement throughout the world. Mitch, great to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me. And again, I'd like to echo what George said. I really appreciate the Common Sense Institute doing this study, looking into this, and based on the number of people that have thanked me, I think that the community agrees. Well, thank you for having the courage to do the report, because I can know there could be a lot of blowback. Before we begin, if you'd like the more background on the discussion today, listeners can find CSA's latest report regarding the subject titled Colorado Crime Wave, an Economic Analysis of Crime, the Need for Data-Driven Solutions on the CSI website. Let's get started. George, with the issue of crime rates, your report found that Colorado's average monthly crime rate in 2021 is 28% higher than it was in 2011 and 15% higher than it was two years ago in 2019. Violent crime is up 35%. Colorado stands out as having the highest motor vehicle theft rate in the country and the largest increase in property crimes over the last decade in the country. What's going on? And it sounds bad. Is it bad? Is it as bad as it sounds? Pass. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it uh, it is worse than it sounds. And frankly, that was one of the things that I found surprising about this. When Mitch and I started jumping into this, I think we both thought, yeah, we're going to see an uptick in crime and we're going to see it related to some policy decisions. 
I was not prepared for the magnitude of the crime and where it put us nationally. I did not expect to see numbers that showed in the not-too-distant past we were below the national average on property crime, on motor vehicle theft, and, and big-ticket issues like that, and to see that we have now vaulted into first or second place in some of the places you don't ever want to be on the podium. The fact that we lead the nation in car theft is inexplicable to me other than some of the policy things that we've discussed. I think crime is probably in almost all corners of the United States up over the last two years for one reason or another, but nowhere more so than in Colorado and for reasons that we can trace back to some things that we've been doing, whether it's under the Gold Dome or in different sheriff's departments and DA's offices throughout the metro area. So we're going to explore that, I hope, a little bit as to the reasons. Uh, organized retail crime and theft in general has taken off, as you described, in the most recent years. Um, give us a sense of why it's happening in more detail than what you just said. Yeah, I think that for organized retail theft, and again, if you talk in terms of what it takes to convince a populace to follow the law, there are two things that go hand in glove. One is the incentive to act correctly and, and lawfully and the disincentive to not act lawlessly. And what we have done over time is to cheapen the first and weaken the latter. And so we have made it less important to act lawfully. And you can see it everywhere we go. There's a diminished sense of personal responsibility and accountability for things that we've seen, whether it's tearing down um, statues or uh, vandalism at the Capitol. That's one aspect. But the bigger aspect, I think, for the ongoing criminal element is that we have made it so much easier to commit property crimes and to not suffer any consequences, to do it largely with impunity. So when it comes to organized retail theft, and you can see this play out on videos from stores across the country, there are groups of loosely affiliated people that will get together and make the decision that they are going to hit a certain store that they know the consequences are de minimis, whether it's because security won't chase them down or because even if they're caught, they know they're going to turn right back around, leave jail, and be back out on the streets. All of those things combine to add an increased incentive and a decreased disincentive for people acting to steal things. Uh, you know, we, we saw numbers coming out of Home Depot and other similar big box stores that are shocking. I think uh, the, the big total number we got was a $1 billion loss. I'll tell you, I think that's conservative. And I think it's conservative because most of these businesses are not invested in wanting to advertise their frailty and their weakness when it comes to defending their own property. So that $1 billion, I think it's low. I'm trying to wrap my head around what you just said. A billion dollars, and I know it locally. So, you know, are, are you telling me a billion dollars of rapes all of a sudden are in somebody's garage that weren't there before? Or are you talk, talking about that it's, people are picking up 10 rakes at a time and then selling them to somebody else who's selling them to somebody? Is there some kind of a underground criminal element here or is it just uh you know you've just got a bad dude and it happens when you aggregate all these bad dudes up these numbers are materializing yeah so such a fair question i think it's both i think you have an aggregate amount that is the product of individuals acting for their own self-benefit but i also think it's undeniable that we have folks that get together and make the decisions to act in concert with one another, whether it's for an entire chain over the course of a day or a week or at one particular store over a short period of time. And while it could be a rake here and there, it could be a small ticket item. We're talking about stealing big ticket items too, generators, things that have a, a high cost to them, things they can turn around and fence 
for money that they either use to for drugs or to fund some other issue that they have. These are things that are a combination of both of those, I think, sir. Mitch, I'm going to follow up with uh, George's uh, question with you, but first, I want to have a I want to ask you about the magnitude, the monetary magnitude of all of this. Your report found the total cost of crime exceeded $27 billion. My gosh, you know, you're talking about the state budget of Colorado. Well, it's just a little less than that. I know. Um, we 32 added up, versus 27, but yeah, still I mean, close. It's it's really close. And, and, and to have that for one year, uh, that's an incredible loss. That's almost $5,000 for every resident here in Colorado. So... If someone's six months old, all the way up to our grandparents, that's the cost for each individual. And I think that that's why the residents of Colorado should be concerned about this report. If you live in a safe area, fine. Your car's not being stolen. Uh, your daughter's not being sexually assaulted. But you're paying, you're paying a certain amount for this monetary loss that we're seeing from this incredible crime rate. The one thing that you broke out in the numbers, Mitch, which I was, um, first of all, I don't know how in the world you got the numbers, so I have to, to congratulate you, is the intangible cost. And it seems to me that when you talk about the intangible cost, you're kind of getting also, at, for people who have kind of put maybe uh, policies in place, they're, they're, they've got a lot of intangible reasons for putting the policies in place. You know, maybe people shouldn't be treated as harshly as they are. But your intangible side says, hey, wait a minute, there's an intangible cost here. Explain that, would you? Because I think people need to understand the, the reach of your study and the cost analysis you did. Well, I think that the intangible cost, if you think about it in terms of violent crime, you have a, you have a victim, gets victimized, has to go to the hospital, has to pay those hospital bills, all of those kinds of things. But what we tried to figure into the intangible costs were those things like the post-traumatic stress that you suffer when you suffer a violent crime, the sleepless nights, the looking over your shoulder wondering if the perpetrator is going to come back and, and re-offend and get you again like he promised on his way out the door. And we see that in all kinds of crimes. I know George has had that experience when he's dealt with victims. And those are the kind of intangible things that we tried to put a value on because we know those are economic losses. The days off work that you have to take when you go to court, the days off work you have to take for mental health reasons because you were the victim of a crime. I, I know, for instance, that victims of burglary, they really never feel the same way about their home. They've actually had an intruder that has destroyed their privacy in their most secure place. And that takes its toll. So what we tried to do was look at the way that those intangibles had been figured before. And, you know, it was the Institute that really helped us with this because they found those places and those institutions that had done that work before and we applied those formulas to come up with those intangible amounts so there's a deep so there's a well there's a monetary cost Absolutely. but there is a very deep social cost is well, what you're saying that impacts productivity impacts just the person's psychological well-being and and uh, there's a ripple effect throughout within society i would imagine is what you're also saying 
Well, absolutely. One of the best questions I've been asked why we have been talking about this with reporters and on the radio and all those things was from a cameraman. And he said, could you explain the frustration that the police must feel, that the businesses that are being victimized must feel, and that those victims must feel when they walk out maybe the next day and they see the offender that they arrested the night before because the courts have put him back out on the street. Uh, the victim knows the individual got a PR bond and is back there on the street and not put away in a place that then they're safe. So there are a lot of these factors that need to be considered. That frustration, I don't know how you'd put a dollar amount on that, and I don't, I don't believe we tried to, but that question was one of the best questions that I was asked because I know that frustration's out there when it comes to the people to try to deal with crime, the police, and the people that are the victims of crime. I'm going to make a stretch here, and both of you respond to it if you would. Fifty years ago, if you can imagine that, I was in uh, South Philadelphia, and there was a big study by the University of Pennsylvania. Is why did groceries cost more in South Philadelphia than the rest of the city? Pin Market was the uh, firm that was being challenged at the time, and it happened to be with an antitrust suit that was going on. And they came back, and they were very honest. They said, we have to make up for the theft that's going on. And then you thought about it. Guess who was, making, who was paying for that theft? It was the community that these people were a part of. Do we have the same thing going on here? We absolutely have the same thing going on here. When we sat down and met with the Home Depot people, they showed us videos of fence operations in warehouses that looked like Home Depot. They didn't have the garden section, but they looked just like Home Depots, if you had looked closely. And what they told us was that there are so many of these items being stolen from all different levels of merchants in our society that these guys can't pass up the bargains that they're getting when you talk about the fences that are buying it. So they become hoarders of stolen items. And George hit it right on the head. They're not stealing the hammer. They're stealing all the uh, high-powered electrical equipment. And when they lock that up and make it safe, then they steal the batteries. And when they lock that up, then they steal something else that has to do with the generator, what has to do with the power tool. And again, they can't pass this up. A lot of it gets out of Colorado when it's stolen in Colorado. This is an organized criminal enterprise. And that's the way you've got to look at it. And when it comes to the study that you talked about in Philadelphia, I remember when Denver had wastelands when it came to grocery stores. The elderly people that lived in Five Points, for instance, had to get on a bus and ride to a suburban grocery store to get their food. Because those grocery stores that my father worked at when he was going through law school, they were all closed because the cost of doing business was too great to keep the doors open on that Safeway or that Miller's store or whatever. And then that entire neighborhood suffers and the elderly people that live in that neighborhood have to go outside to get the things they need to live. So oftentimes where the criminal element lives, they end up costing that the particular population ends up paying for it. George, you mentioned 
auto theft? Are we talking about teenagers on joy rides, or are we talking about taking catalytic converters and then leaving the cars without catalytic converters? But there's a big increase, a big number one in the country. I'm trying to figure, as far as growth goes, I'm tr- trying to figure out why, how has it happened, and are are we all of a sudden, you know, taking a ride for six blocks or you know whatever, and then leaving the car? What is this auto theft that we're faced with? Yes, and yes, and yes to the to the possibilities. There are, of course, folks that steal cars for joy rides. There are kids that do that, no doubt. So that's about part it. of the number. That, that, that's part of the number. But in terms of stealing cars for catalytic converters and parts, that exists. That gets bigger. There's also those who steal cars because they know there are places they can take them where they can trade them for drugs or they can trade them for money or something else. And then there are those that steal the cars for purposes of committing additional crimes, whether it's home invasion, burglaries, business burglaries. They'd rather do it in a stolen car than something that might be attached to their identities or their names. And maybe they don't even have cars. So it kind of runs the gamut. My expectation is that most of these thefts fall into that latter category. Cars stolen to commit other crimes, cars stolen for different parts or pieces that might be of value, whether it's the catalytic converter or anything and everything else. I believe uh, some of our cars end up getting sent to chop shops and then get uh, trucked down south. There is no one thing that can account for this other than this. We have had such a permissive policy now when it comes to property crimes, and I'll say specifically with car theft, and I blame the policymakers who've attached the word just to any crime. And what they'll say is, well, it's just a low-level property crime. Well, it's just a drug crime. Well, it's just a car theft crime. When you do that, you diminish the value of it, not only for the public, but for the system itself. And so you have these repeat offenders. And, and you know, when you talk to guys like Commander Mike Greenwell from CMAT, and they're in charge of the motor vehicle theft stuff, they will tell you that during the course of the time that we closed our jails to car thieves, that they would pick up someone on their second, third, fourth, fifth, or more offense, and they would outright tell them, I know you're not taking me to jail. I know you're putting me right back out on the street. And when you have a system like that, why are we shocked that they continue to offend? And that's something that we've seen play out on a whole bunch of crimes. I want to follow up, if I could, and both of you, if you want to respond to it, on the criminal. Are we talking about, let's assume there's 100 criminals, just to have a number that we can work with. Out of 100 criminals, are we talking about 50 of them being professional criminals, that, hey, this is their livelihood, or are we... Over half? Are we talking some small part of a criminal? This criminal, this criminality is going on, or are we talking about a bunch of gang kids that don't know what else to do? They're not in school, and so they decided that between eighteen and twenty-four, they're going to show how hot they are and do criminal things and steal. You know, what is this criminal element? What's the profile that we can kind of? How much is a professional criminal? Let me ask that specifically of the totality of what you see is going on? It really depends on what part of Colorado you're in. You know, I was in Denver. I was that from 83 to 2017 in one form or another in the DA's office. Started there as an intern, then was the elected DA. Denver has a lot of professional criminals. And when you look at their arrest records, and we did some of that in this case, in this study, we looked back to see how many times they'd been arrested in the last three years. I think the average was five times. You know, I'm so that's all, how they make a living. That's how they make a living, and the downside of that is having to deal with the criminal justice system, maybe serving some time. I don't think people realize 
these criminals pay attention to the laws that are passed. They know the felony level for theft, and they steal right below that. And then they go to the next store, and they steal right below that again. They're well, very well versed in what's going on. When they realize the police have been hamstrung or have their hands tied, then it's time to take your gun out on the street. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Those you're, you're... types of things, these, they pay attention. They know what's going on. They are very in tune with what's going on with the police, what's going on with the law, and how they can continue what I consider their careers. So I could, if I really had my act together and I was a criminal, I would know that if I didn't go above $100 or $200 or something else like this, I could get caught and I'd have my hand slapped and I could be out tomorrow and try to, you know, continue stealing up to $100 or $100, whatever it is. So there's certain levels like, it's well known by the criminal as to how much they can go to and then what the uh, the punishment might be that, that could keep them out on the street. Did Ab I hear that correctly? Absolutely. We would catch shoplifting ga gangs and groups, and they would steal right below the felony level. And the felony level for theft in Colorado is quite high. When I started, it was $200. It went up to $400. Now it is I don't know. It's way above that. And they steal right below that. So it's a misdemeanor theft. But then they go to every store in the neighborhood and they steal there. So what we did was we passed a statute where we could aggregate the amounts that they were stealing over a six month period, add that together. And if that went over the felony level, then you could prosecute them for the felony. So you can pass policy. You can pass statutes that address the kind of behavior that we're talking about, and that's an example, aggregating the value. That was done in, what, the 90s? Mm -hmm. And that then impacted what we were seeing with these organized groups. Remember, these are criminal enterprises that we're talking about. You don't get away with billions of dollars of property from these stores unless you're well-organized, you've got a place to take it to make the money that you need, and then those people are criminals that are then dispersing this throughout the country. One of the interesting stories they told us is the small merchants will get hit, and then their items will be sold on Facebook or somewhere at a lower amount then they sell it for, and they get put out of business by their own merchandise that was stolen from them. There, there's a, another example I'll give you of how the criminal element changes to policies. So over the last so many years, the legislature has been very offender-friendly, but with specific focus on juveniles. They've watered down the juvenile justice system a ton. That's filtered into the courts, where in Arapahoe County, it is very difficult for a juvenile who's picked up on almost any crime to ever be detained or spend the night out of home. And so what Aurora started seeing, and the Aurora burglary detectives will tell you this, an explosion in burglaries by juveniles because the gangs that they're affiliated with, the groups they're affiliated with, know, I don't want to be in the house when a burglary is committed. I want to send these kids in there because the consequences are so de minimis. So when you ask, does the criminal element appreciate what policy decisions have been made, they are more acutely aware of them, my guess is, than your neighbors. I hate to be so cynical, but, you know, I'm sure somebody's making a lot of money giving these gangs advice as to how they can avoid the issues. They all can't be that smart, but maybe they are. I'm, they're a clever element, that's for sure. Let, let's move on to the correctional population for a second, George. The incarceration levels have plummeted, 
you kind of alluded to that to some extent. While crime rates have soared, which we've clearly talked about, between 2008 and 2021, the Colorado prison population declined by 23%, while the number of annual crimes increased by 47%, or 131,399 annual crimes. Correlation is not causation. We understand that. But uh, there's some, I just can't believe there's not something here. What are your thoughts? Well, first, that number has since been updated since we released that. It's now a third. The prison population has decreased a third between 2008 and 2021, but crime itself in terms of the numbers has gone up 47%. I get that correlation isn't necessarily causation, but if it's not causation, then that means it's coincidence. That means we just happen to be hemorrhaging people out of prisons. And oh, by the way, just by chance, there's an increased number of crimes being committed. That defies common sense. I think the other thing that we were not able to quantify, and it's difficult to get this information, is how the change in parole policies has impacted these folks, too. You used to be able to revoke, to be revoked off a of prison parole for all sorts of things that you did wrong, whether it was to test positive for drugs, you no-show your appointments, you don't have a job. All of that stuff has gone the way of the dodo, and now it is very, very difficult to revoke someone off a of parole and send them back into the Department of Corrections. You combine that with the fact that under the previous governor's administration, they closed down two, two prisons, forcing the entire prison population into the existing infrastructure and then claim we're bursting at the seams. Now there's so much crime that they're talking about having to reopen at least one, if not two, of the prisons that they had previously closed down. If there's no connection between us hemorrhaging prisoners and keeping people out of prison when they commit crimes and the increase in crime, then it's just pure baffling coincidence. I read a study some time ago, and I appreciate comment from either one of you, that the uh, state budgetary department uh, used to take a look at the uh, reading level of fourth graders in the state of Colorado, and depending upon the reading level, how much of a difficulty there was or how far they were below uh, standard, that would gave them an indication of the criminal population 10 to 15 years out. Do you find that uh, you, you mentioned these criminal elements seem to be pretty smart folk? But do you find that there's an illiteracy amongst some of the criminal element that you're talking about that uh, people like to say, my goodness, you know, these poor folks, they can't read, they can't write, so you know, they've got to find another way of living? You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, that, that is part of what this study is about because those responses that we have gotten are by people that are policymakers, and they say, well, we don't agree, you know, that... Crime is caused by poverty. Crime is caused by drugs and mental illness. And, and they're, tr they're right about that. And what you're talking about is early childhood development. And George and I both know that if you've got a good program, you can study that. And in places like Detroit, they've done that. And it makes an incredible difference. Those kids that they started in the 1960s, they didn't become criminals. We're not talking about that group in this study. We're talking about the mature, already developed, professional criminal that's out on the street instead of in the penitentiary. How are we dealing with the criminals? Not what made them criminals, because they are now. And sure, we should be investing in mental health. We should be investing in drug treatment. We should be investing in our kids and keeping them from becoming the criminal element. And that's very important. And we support that. But what we're talking about is how you're treating the violent criminal that is a criminal now. It's, he's a rapist. 
He is he murders people. He assaults people. How do you deal with him now? Because it's the current crime that are driving these increases and this over twenty eight billion dollar uh, costs that we saw last year in our state. I was mortified by the rise in homicides. And that is stunning to me, and particularly what's happened in the last two years. What in the world is going on? Is this all a part of just evolving out of what you're talking about, just generally what's already occurring is promoting the, the auto theft, it's promoting the retail. This is just a higher degree of insensitivity by the criminals to what they might do to the general populace and the homicide level. That's, you know, you're talking about lives. You're talking about situations that people are going to, I would think they're going to find themselves eventually, I would hope in jail, or I would hope that they would be thinking better about how they go out and shoot somebody or kill somebody. Is there a rash of reasons that are different now that would motivate people to kill somebody? Or is it the same reasons except people are just deciding they can do it? I think there is a growing sense of lawlessness and a permissive lawlessness that's taking place. You combine that with a period of time when law enforcement has been deliberately put on their heels. They're encouraged to be less proactive and more reactive. Those things are recognized. So just allowing things to get worse. I think when you stop enforcing the law, even at the lower levels, you can't expect people to follow the law at the higher levels. Let me put those numbers, though, that you talked about in perspective. You know, back in the summer of violence in 1993, we had so many homicides in Denver over the course of that year that Governor Roy Romer convened a special session of the legislature to put in place laws to attack that violent crime. Do you know we have more homicides in Denver today than we did during the summer of violence in 1993? I haven't heard a single policymaker come out and say, we need to do something about this. Instead, I've even heard some of the policymakers who have pushed the keep them out of jail, keep them out of prison song saying things like, well, I'm concerned that this study doesn't address things like social media driven anger as a source of crime. I don't know a single crime that I've prosecuted ever that was the product of social media anger, but this is that sort of apologist approach to this that refuses to recognize, not in the long term, like Mitch was talking about, and those are real things that need to be addressed, but in the short term, we can turn the tide on crime right now by taking a far more proactive approach to keeping those repeat and violent offenders in jail and behind bars. That is demonstrably effective. It has been historically. It's something I think we ought to consider returning to. I can tell you, and Denver's going to have a higher homicide rate than it had last year. And last year, you had to go back to 93 to find the homicide rate that, that we had. While I was the district attorney in Denver, we had some of the lowest homicide rates. You had to go back to the 70s to find rates that low. It's the trends. It's the things that have changed as far as the law. It's like that comment that I made, when you know that the police are not going to contact you, you take your gun out on the street. When you have your gun out on the street, and everybody does, that's when you get the shootings. That's when you get the homicide. But to go back to the reduction in the population as far as the penitentiary goes, these PR bonds that we talked about in the study, people that get probation that didn't used to qualify for probation. Currently in Denver, over 20 homicides have been committed by individuals that are under supervision at the time of the killing of the criminal justice system. The year before, and this came from Chief Pazin. It was in the 30s. This year, we're up around 25. These are people that are on probation 
on parole or on bond in the criminal justice system and are supposedly being supervised by someone and they're out there killing people. They've already, they've already killed somebody. No. They're on bond for a violent crime, for a instance. violent crime, I'm sorry. Having okay. a gun, using a gun, possession of a gun when it's illegal for them to have it, and they have killed people. Or they're on parole, and they kill people while they're right. under the supervision of a parole officer. Or they're on probation from the district court, and they have killed somebody while they're under supervision. So they're not on probation for a murder, but they commit a murder while they're being supervised. And that is a striking number when you're talking about over 20 people just this year that are supposed to be either locked up or, you know, under some pretty tight supervision out there killing people on our streets. Everybody wants to know that's listening to this. Okay, what's the path forward? What one, two, three, four things you think, hey, we have really got to face and we've got to take action on and the action you would suggest. Please, both of you. George, let's start with you and then Mitch if you would, you know, follow up. Before I give these things, I want to say that I am sensitive to the idea that as the pendulum in criminal justice and public safety swings, we have a tendency to go overboard and I'm not going to suggest that there aren't some changes in the laws that were necessary in terms of what we did with certain mandatory minimums or, or certain sentencing and, and bond. But we've gone so far the other direction. We have abandoned things that have demonstrably worked. It is not coincidence that when we got, quote unquote, tough on crime in the 90s, that we saw violent crime nationally and locally plummet, as well as property crime, too. The two things I would advocate for are getting away from this notion that we're going to abandon cash bail that we're going to give these $1 and $2 bonds and bails. We return to the, the process that we had before. And then the other one is we need to have real sentencing. We need to have sentencing that is predictable, uh, that has promise to it when someone commits a crime, and that people can know. Short of life without the possibility of parole, sir, do you know there's nobody on the planet Earth that can tell you how long someone will spend in prison, no matter what number comes out of a judge's mouth? Nobody, not even the Department of Corrections knows. That is no way to get to the kind of certainty you need for predictability to change behavior. And then the final thing I'd say is uh, we need to uh, keep investing and maybe even reinvesting back in law enforcement. There is no better deterrent than having an active and present law enforcement. Doesn't mean they're flawless. Doesn't mean we can't focus on things like social justice issues. But putting them on their heels, cutting back their resources is a demonstrable way to make us less safe. I can tell you that uh, there's all sorts of psychological studies that say that if people are dealing with an uncertain environment, they'll act uncertain. And what I just heard you say was, hey, give some solid guidelines. These are you know, pretty smart people out there. And if they know this is the way the world works, they can find a way to operate within it. Is that fair? I think it's incredibly fair. I got to say, if you had the promise of jail, even a day or two of jail for every single person that stole something. And remember, theft at any level is the most intentional act you can get, you can engage in, right? Nobody accidentally steals. If you had the promise of some type of incarceration for every single theft, I promise you theft would plummet. Interesting. Mitch, please. Well, one of the, we, we made three recommendations in this study. And one of the hardest things we found the Common Sense Institute ran into was that this is not a transparent system. 
that there are players in this system that it is very hard to get information out of. And the state judicial, for example, was nearly impossible to get the bonding numbers from anywhere other than Denver, and we tried. So one of the recommendations is to make it a more transparent system. There should be a dashboard like there is in so many other places where you go and get information that you can get information about the bond trends that are happening in your community, the trends of the population of the penitentiary. All the things that we looked at were very hard to eke out of the of the criminal justice system. The other recommendation we made was very specific to organized retail theft, and that was to create an interagency task force to look at how we can address those things. Some states have done that. We need to follow those states. You know, the one thing about legislators, they like to steal other legislators' bills and run those bills. Well, steal this bill from the states that have it. I'm sure the the commercial organizations in the state will give you that information. Take it and make a bill about it. And then the other thing is that it's really time that we take a look at those, quote, reforms, uh, the changes in the laws. You know, they've matured now over time. I haven't been in office since 2017. And I spoke to the retiring county court judge a couple years after I was gone. And he proudly said PR bonds were up 100% since I left. And I said, and look at the crime rate. And he had no answer for me. PR and, being personal reconnaissance bonds, absolutely. which means you could just say, I'll show up when you want me to, Judge. Yeah, I'll promise to show up. And, you know, the thing about it, the other thing I've heard is that this is all due to COVID. And the one thing this study proved is these are the trends that have been going on for the last 15 or 20 years in this state. We didn't have COVID in 2010. We didn't have COVID like we have it now in 2017. These are not based on COVID. These are based on the trends and the policies that have been put in place for the last decade in the state of Colorado. So now it's time to go back and look at those things and adjust them. I think George agrees. We're not saying throw it all out. What we're saying is it's time to adjust and fix those things to prevent this crime rate from becoming worse next year worse the next year, and just continuing to spiral up like it has been for the last 10 years. Mitch, George, thank you both for your time and the incredible insights of this topic and uh, the war stories and your experience. I don't think we could get two people with better experience in the past couple of decades. No offense, Mitch, (laughs) George. And I hope that policymakers and business leaders will take time to really consider the value of CSI's research on crime and the input the two of you provided to us today. To learn more about CSI's research, go to our website, and you can find it on www.commonsenseinstitutecode.org to find the full report. I really encourage you to read it. I I found it um, enthralling. It also raises a lot more questions as I read it. The report is the Colorado Crime Wave, an economic analysis of crime and the need for data-driven solutions. Thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to close with, either one of you? Uh, One, thanks again to CSI. This doesn't happen accidentally, and it doesn't happen without the investment of some real-time resources and expertise, so I really appreciate that. The second thing I would say is this. Look, 
I'm open to the idea that we haven't figured out every question or every answer, but one of the things I would love for our policymakers to answer as a result of this is not just why is it happening, but why is Colorado leading in so many categories on what is happening? That has to be something that gets addressed by those in charge. And I agree with George and just want to thank the Institute. I think that the people of Colorado are extremely lucky that there is an organization like the Common Sense Institute that looks into hard issues. And there's no question that this is one of those hard issues. And uh, George, I want to thank George for being part of it, too, because uh, having George and I, you know, I think that you're right. I mean, I go back to 83, and I know I'm older than George, but George has an incredible... You look a lot better, though. (laughs) George has incredible experience. Uh, He's run a big office, and so I just wanted to thank George for being part of the team and thank the Institute. Thank Thank you you. for having the courage to do the report. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.